Mac Power Users, Episode 87, Workflows with John Syracuse. This is David Sparks. Along with me is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. And also we have John Syracuse with us today. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm so happy that you uh, you agreed to come on the show. I'm a big fan of your hypercritical show on the 5x5 network. Uh, I have to admit, you have just wormed your way into my heart with uh, <laughs> your talks, your nerdy talks. I love the way you think through everything, and you've always got such an interesting opinion. And I got thinking, a guy like that, must have some pretty strong opinions about what stuff he uses to get work done on his Mac. So we thought we'd have you come in. Yeah, I think you may be surprised exactly how weak my opinions are, but I guess I do have them. Yeah. Well, for instance, uh, so your day job, you're a, a computer programmer. That's right. Famously in Perl. <laughs> and, um, and you also write for Ars Technica, uh, some of the, you know, the, the legendary Mac operating system review so that come out with every new operating system upgrade, but you also do other stuff for them as well. And and you blog, right? You also have a blog, don't you? Yeah, I used to do a lot. I found I used to do a lot more writing before I started podcasting, and now I feel like pod, the podcast plus Twitter gets a lot of the uh, stuff I would have your written. Outlet. Yeah, like, and then it just sort of bleeds it out of me. So I, I still do occasionally uh, post something to my personal blog and then ours uh, I'll write something if I think there's something significant for me to write and then of course the operating system reviews every year Yeah, you, you had made a comment. Every year now, yeah oh, Yeah, oh, don't remind me <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah Mount, so Mountain Lion's next so we're all going to look forward to reading that sometime this summer I guess I don't know when they're going to do it um, but you know the uh, in addition to the stuff you write, though, you do do this excellent show, Hypercritical. And, and it is an experience I share as well. When you get on a podcast and talk about something, it seems like it just kind of sucks the energy out in terms of writing a real extended post on it because you feel like you've already exercised your demons, at least in my case. And it does affect the amount of writing you do for the post. Um, another thing you said once that I completely agree with is sometimes you'll see somebody cover something really well and you're like, okay, great, now I don't need to do that. Yeah. Someone else has, has already got it. Yeah, like the, the, when I talk about things on the podcast, I definitely I'm I'm more like working them out out loud. And if I was to write something, I would have to go through that same process during the writing. But at the end of a podcast, what I have is not an audio equivalent of what I would have written. What I have is the audio equivalent of the thinking I would have to do before I could write it. So it's kind of yeah. unfair to the audience and they're like, oh, so where's the coherent version of this? You know, instead of you just rambling, you get the rambling. Sometimes you don't get the coherent version. Uh, and, and really, so we get the two hour show instead of the 200 word blog post. Yeah. And, and the thing is, those, well, it's not my blog posts are never 200 words, but the thing is, the blog yeah. posts take much longer than an hour to write. That probably, sure. uh, for me anyway, some people can bang these things out, but I take a long time to write. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, and, I find it fascinating hearing the process, and you know, while you say you, you're thinking it out on the, the podcast, that's great, because I like hearing you think it out. I think you're a really smart guy, and I enjoy hearing you go through that stuff. And, well, and sometimes, like us, you go back and forth, and you change your mind. And, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of working it out. Like, uh, it, you know, having a lot of listeners is great, because I will say something, and then I'll just wait for the feedback. And then the next week, I will revisit in light of the new feedback and see what did I mess up or how, what have people you know told me that's new information that I didn't have or persuaded me one way or the other. 
Yeah, that, I mean that really is the great benefit of a um, of a successful podcast. I learn so much from the audience. Something I didn't expect when I got into this. So let's start at the beginning and get a little bit of history from you, if we can. How did you get into Max and the technology field, and and how did you become hypercritical of all of this stuff? So uh, I guess I my experience with computers started when I was very very young, and my parents wanted me to understand computers because back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, dutiful, yuppie parents, oh, the computers are the future. We need to get our kids to understand computers. So they sent me to a, a, a typing class to learn how to type on computers, and they rented me a VIC-20, a Commodore VIC-20. That was my first computer. Uh, we didn't actually own. They just rented it, I guess, because it was so expensive. Uh, and I did all, you know, did that stuff when I was just too young to even know what these things were. Uh, but when I was 10-ish, actually nine years old, uh, my parents got a Mac 128K, the original Mac, and that yeah. that was the that was an epoch in my life because if you if you can imagine going from uh, typing classes on an Apple II and, and having a VIC 20 in your house that is hooked up to your TV, going to a Mac, that is a discontinuity in my experience with the computers, and so that that was it. I was I was a Mac person for life once I had that, and I, and all during my childhood growing up, we just had a series of Macs. Uh, we had that. We motherboard upgraded to a Mac Plus. Got a a Mac SE 30 and we got to the power PC Macs, and I went off to school with it, you know? Uh, so I've been Mac from day one for life. Uh, and it just, the computer as, as you well know, anyone who is a, a long time Mac user just connected with me on a certain level that other computers didn't. Uh, and even though all my friends had PCs and, uh, they had better games than I did and everything, I was just hundred percent committed to the Mac. So that's, that's how I got into the world of Mac for, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I started working programming on an Atari 400 computer, and I don't know if you remember that one, but it didn't even have a real keyboard. It had this sheet of plastic that you had to like jam your fingers against to register a keystroke. And when I got on a Mac, and I think I might have told the story on the show before, but that control panel where it had the tortoise and the hare for the mouse clicking speed, yeah, that, that just blew my mind. That you know, a computer would like help you that way and it's like it's a good way to put it. it just changes your your whole outlook and i think that's the reason why i'm sitting here right now or even beyond that just just the concept of a mouse and a gui which i had never experienced or knew of at you know, nine years old what do i know but it's like this this was it, it was almost as if the two things weren't both the same like you're saying telling me these are both computers the the apple II where i type things at a prompt or a vic 20 or something where i type my basic programs and this thing where i move a mouse on the table and there's a cursor and windows and it looks like a bunch of little drawings. It was very different. Yeah. Uh, and, but at that point I was not a programmer. I was not really particularly into programming. I had, I had a, uh, what was it? Was it Microsoft? No, it wasn't Microsoft basic. It was some basic program I had that I fiddled around with trying to write my own text adventures, but I had so little understanding of what programming actually was and did not have the patience or interest to read any sort of book on the topic. So I, I futzed around and made really bad text adventures. And I remember doing a little bit of stuff in, in HyperCard with the HyperTalk and stuff too, but definitely you would not consider me a programmer uh, until I went to college. And I, was, I didn't know what I wanted to major in, but I knew I liked computers and I liked engineering. So I majored in computer engineering, which is really just electrical engineering with a couple of CS courses thrown in. Uh, and for the first several years, I'm just taking basic engineering courses. I didn't, didn't even get to anything related to computer engineering until like second or third year. 
Uh, but when so I, you're a hardware guy by training. I didn't know that. Well, I mean, that's the course. It felt to me like I was taking a lot of math and physics. I'm like, why am I taking physics? What does that have to do with computers? But it's just part of the standard, you know, standard engineering curriculum. So it was electrical engineering. Uh, but eventually I got to the CS courses. But that's during college because I entered college in, what was it, 1993-ish? That was when the internet was hitting, right? So I was in college at the time the internet was arriving on the scene and, you know, connected to an Ethernet connection over whatever the, the university had, a, a T1 or T3. Uh, it was amazingly fast uh, compared to like a modem and home or something. And that's when I really got into programming. That's when I, I discovered over the course of this four-year degree that what I was most interested in was not designing CPUs or doing hardware and certainly not math or physics. It was writing software. And I discovered that basically by, you know, writing my own software, being around at the dawn of the web, making web pages, making, you know, C programs and little scripts and stuff to run on the Unix system. I had never really used Unix before. And so that's what made me a programmer, basically. So when I graduated, I had 100% determined that what I want to do for a living is write computer programs. And that's, and, that's, you've done. and that's what I went off to do. And, of course, during that time, the, the dawning of the Internet, uh, I was on various websites. And as websites became a thing and web forums became a thing, one of the websites that I frequented was Ars Technica, which was just arriving then, to read other articles by nerdy people. And I would argue in their web forums at Ars Technica about the merits of the Mac versus the PC and all those things that you argued about on the Internet in 1994 and 1995 and all up to, you know, and so sometime around 1998, 99, the founder of that site, uh, Ken Fisher, sort of plucked me out of the web forums and said, hey, would you, uh, you know, we've been, I've seen you arguing in the forums and I've argued with you over email about this Mac versus PC thing. What do you think about writing something for our website? And I said, sure. And so that's how that relationship started. And, you know, they had something they wanted me to write about. I would write it, and they would put it up, and it just sort of snowballed from there. And when it came time to review Mac OS X, I don't remember if they asked me to do it. I think I might have pitched them because the first review I did was the second developer preview release, and no one even knew what the heck Mac OS X was if you weren't a super Mac nerd. So I said, hey, there's this thing called Mac OS X, and uh, it's pretty cool, and I'd like to write about it. And I think they just basically said, okay. And yeah. that's how that started and they're like legendary reviews, right? I mean, everybody knows. You just go read John Syracuse's review. I, I've never written a review of any uh, operating system. I just link to yours every time. It's just, it's just so good. Well, don't go back and read the old ones because they're not as good as you thought they were. But I had I had the blessing of being the only person on the web writing about this topic. Like Mac OS X Developer Preview 2, no one even knew what Mac OS X was at that point, And people had largely written off the Mac. So... I, w I had the market entirely to myself. So anything I would have wrote, and I was like, what, what is this crazy operating system? It's like Unix, but it's the Mac, and they say this is going to replace the current Mac. And what, who, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, so that got me my foot in the door, being the only one. And the other thing that helped me is that I really had no idea what I was doing. And so I just like, what is a software review? I don't know, but this is what I want to write. And yeah. luckily that connected with people, and I continue to... Even though I think I know a little bit more what I'm doing now, I continue to basically write the kind of review that I want to write that is not like most software reviews that I read and really not like most, most of the reviews that are on Ars Technica. It's very, I feel it's a very kind of a personal creation, and I'm just lucky enough that there are other people who connect with that type of review. Well, I like the way... There's a couple of things. First is you've got this engineering and programming background, so you can cover the underpinnings of the operating system in a way that I'm not capable of and, and explain it in ways that people, you know, us mere mortals can understand. So I think that's a real talent. And I like the way you inject your own personality into it. Even like the footnotes and the little references you put are always really great. 
So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You know, like you even go to you go to WWDC just so you can make sure you understand everything going on for this review. I mean, right? That's the dirty secret of my reviews is that most of them are uh, opinion filled, uh, poorly sourced summaries of WWDC. Basically, if you if you went to WWDC and sat through all the sessions and absorbed all the knowledge and summarized them and shoved in a little bit of your opinion, that's basically what my reviews are. Uh, but if you have no idea what WWDC is, and you read this review, you're like, wow, look at all this information. Where did this come from? Well, it came from Apple. They told us this information over the course of an entire week and, you know, hundreds of hours worth of video that I sat through. So I don't feel bad about it as if I'm cribbing off them. I think that's a valuable service. I sit through the – I used to not be able to go to these things because they were, you know, too far away and too expensive and I couldn't get a ticket and couldn't get out there. So I would just watch the videos and I would just watch hours upon hours upon hours of videos. Now with the scheduling, that's not really feasible because they tend to release the operating system right after WWDC. And if I waited and, you know, waited for the videos to come out, I wouldn't have time to review them. So let's talk a little bit about that. You, you've done your research and, and these big reviews. What, where do you start, Ryan? I mean, do you make an outline or do you just start writing the first sentence? What, what do you do? Yeah, so this is where like, I, feel, I feel like there, in all things that I'm doing on, on the computer involving uh, particularly my writing work, I feel like there are tools available to help me that I don't know about I'm not using. So that what I do do, like, it kind of works for me and I don't, like it's not terrible, but I always feel like, man, there's got to be a more efficient way to do this. And I, and I've tweaked it a little bit over time to get slightly more efficient, but it's fairly barbaric. So my process for my current process for doing a Mac OS X review is as soon as there's any acknowledgement that a new version of the operating system exists in any form, uh, and sometimes slightly before that, I start a document. It used to be a document, uh, a rich text document in Yojimbo. These days, it's a RTF file in Dropbox, uh, but it had to be someplace that was like synchronized everywhere. And I do it in outline form. I use the uh, the standard Mac OS X text controls, really primitive outline thing. You know, if you go to a rich text document and text edit and type, hold down the option key and hit tab, you enter this weird outlining mode. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't know that thing exists there, and I didn't know until years and years ago. But uh, and that's what I do, and I make an outline. And the outline is, you know, it evolves over time, and it's kind of, I usually have some sort of rough outline of, of how the thing is going to go, beginning, middle, and end, what sections am I going to cover, and then the rest of the document is pull-outs for things that I think are important, so like the section on the applications, maybe the section on the core OS, and, you know, sort of, sort of related to the sections that I'm going to have in my review. And then for the next six months, nine months, however long it is between the time that, that a new version uh, was known to exist or announced or a code name is leaked or anything about it, I just add to that, those notes constantly. Anytime I see anything, a link, a piece of information, anything, I, I, what I add is the information, copy and pasted the URL that I got it from, uh, some uh, like one or two or three lines of notes that, I, you know, that are going to remind me what I want to say about this, and I just build that thing up. Uh, and by the time I start writing... What I should have, actually, let me peek at that document now. I don't know how many lines I have. But what I should have is a pretty darn big uh, pile of information. This is before I even go to WWC. So this is before I've seen a single video gone to WWC or anything like that. Uh, I have lots of information to go on. And what I'm trying to do is sort in my head what is going to be like the message of this review. Is there a thrust, a general thrust to the thing? What are the themes I'm going to hit? And that... That I want to evolve in my head as I, you know, eventually during this point, I'm going to, I'm going to download a, a developer preview build. I'm going to use it a little bit. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to do some experimentation. I'm going to take some, start taking some screenshots. 
screenshots will just be, you know, from the Mac OS X screenshot thing, shoved into those those ping images, shoved into a folder alongside this RTF document in my Dropbox. And I'll just basically build up uh, in this folder named after the operating system all the raw materials, completely raw screenshots, a bunch of notes, uh, URLs that I put, and just build up that collection of information before I write a single line. And then when I come to write, I want to already know what it is that I'm doing. Then I open a new document. This is going okay, to be the review and start writing based on what I have, usually doing like a section at a time. So the first document is really your, is your research. Yeah. Uh, and and that, now you talked about kind of building a theme or the, telling the story that you want to tell with this review. Do you, do you track that separately in your research document or do you just keep that in your head at that that's point? That's usually like at the very top of the research document, the first uh, sort of the first section of outlining is the overall thing. Like in the beginning, I just have introduction conclusion, like, and I have nothing yeah. in between, right? And then I will rename those to like, you know, what am I going to say in the introduction? What is my conclusion? And that that's the trickiest part because it's not like a movie review where you go see the movie and then decide what you think of it. This thing is being built right before your eyes. And you know, you'll know, you try it, and they'll release a new preview release, and it'll have new features, they'll change their mind about something, and like right up to the last minute, you don't know what the finished product is, but you have to decide what you think the themes that you're going to focus on are. Uh, WWC helps clarify that because they Apple itself will push whatever themes, like this release is all about you know features X, Y, and Z, and then you can use that to color your thinking. But by using the operating system in its various states of incompleteness, I'm hoping to get a feel for like what it is I'm going to say and, and what the themes are. And I will put them in the top section of like bullet point themes. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's what the sections are. Usually the section names say that like uh, it, it, it will like, uh, I don't know how well I communicate this in the finished product. Like, I don't know if you remember the snow leopard review, but if you were to think back to the, the Mac OS 10.6, Mac OS 10, 10.6 review uh, of snow leopard, I, I bet I could ask anyone who read that, what is the dominant theme what 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 was my focus on this operating system? What did I say is the, the the biggest theme in this thing? And I bet they wouldn't be able to tell me simply because the theme is much more prominent in my mind than it is in the review. When you have a review that's twenty three pages long, maybe they don't see what the theme is. But there, at least in my mind, I know what it is that I think I'm focusing on, and that helps me tremendously. How do you incorporate your notes at a large event like WWDC, where you're probably getting such a large volume of information in such a condensed time period? Are you sitting there with your uh, MacBook Air taking notes in that original RTF document that you started? Are you doing something different and taking just WWDC notes and merging them in, or does the process change at all? So this was much easier when I was doing the videos, because you can pause a video. When I was watching the videos, I'd watch a little bit, I'd pause, and then I would mark up that same single, increasingly large, uh, I'd be fleshing it out, increasing that outline, fleshing it out, and pausing and rewinding and stuff like that. Uh, last year was my first time I was at WWDC, and I had to adopt an entirely different strategy because you can't pause the speaker, although I wish, I sorely wish you could. And also, you will not have the videos or the slides until like a week or two later, which is much faster than it used to be. It used to be months later, and I would just agonize waiting for those videos to come out, knowing that everyone else had already seen WWDC. But uh, you are on the clock. Like when they go to the next slide and you didn't see what the last bullet point is, you're not going to see that slide again for two weeks. Right. Yeah. And so if I, I want to go back and have two weeks of writing uh, and they're going to release the operating system in three weeks, I really would like to know what the last bullet did. So I had to adopt a information capture focused strategy. Uh, I brought both my MacBook Pro and uh, an iPad with me last year, and I quickly shifted over entirely to using the iPad just because I needed the physical mobility to be flipping around. Uh, what I used last year was SimpleNote. 
and I typed on the iPad keyboard, which I'm not particularly good at, as fast as I possibly could in the most condensed manner as I could, not caring if I misspelled anything as long as I could tell what it was later, and tried to capture what I thought were the most pertinent things that, that either the speaker said or were on the notes. And I tried to focus a little bit more on what the speaker said uh, because I'll be able to look at the PDFs of the notes eventually, but listening, going back and listening to a week's worth of audio is incredibly time-consuming. So that was my capture strategy last year. And then I had to, after WDC was over, or sometimes at the night or whatever, look at those notes, pull out the pieces, shove them into the relevant spots in my giant uh, outline things. And this, this is what makes me think this is an incredibly inefficient process, because there's got to be some sort of, like, what am I using here? I'm using sticks and rocks. I've got, I'm making basically plain text notes in outline form, manually typed, and then just manually kind of merging them together. It seems like, I, I know I've read about David, how you were using Scrivener to get your writing done, and it has much more, you know, those little note cards on the on the uh, the corkboard and stuff. And I have a copy of Scrivener and everything, and I think maybe that's something I should do. But the primitiveness of what I'm doing, just plain text documents, and the fact that you know it's all compatible, I can use Simple Note, I can use Text Edit, I can use anything everywhere, and it's all synced through Dropbox or a website or whatever. I guess that. That makes me feel better that I'm not locking my stuff into a proprietary format or the, oh, how am I going to take notes in Scrivener on an iPad? I don't even know if there's an iPad version of Scrivener, but those type yeah. of concerns don't come up when I'm working with like the least common denominator format for everything. No, that makes sense. I mean, the, um, I mean, not that I'm recommending that you do whatever you need to do. I, I use Scrivener when I wrote my books, I use Scrivener and then they have a method where it syncs to simple note. It actually syncs the individual pieces to simple note. And then you can access them on your iPad. But, you know, whatever works. I mean, I, I think a big text file is okay. The idea behind Scrivener is to have your research and your actual operative document combined in one in one file, which is really convenient. I think it would actually be pretty convenient for the stuff you do, but uh, it really works best if you're just working on a Mac. If you're going to add an iPad to the mix, you know, what I do with Scrivener is I use an application like ByWord or some other iCloud um, savvy text editor and I just type on the iPad and then I just eventually pull that stuff over into the Scrivener file on the computer. I don't do it. Um, I don't try and do it with the simple note synch synchronization because it seems kind of fiddly to me. Yeah. I'm always, you know, I'm always shocked at how much content uh, I produce, like, you know, as part of making the article, not, not the article itself, but the research phase of it. And, the idea that it could all be in a single Scrivener document, I find that appealing instead of my big mess of folders and files and everything, except for the fact that I literally have over a gigabyte of data by the time I'm done writing. And then like yeah. that produces like, you know, a, a 100K text file, 100K HTML. Like that's the finished product. But the, the folders containing all the screenshots, all the scraps of information, everything are routinely over a gigabyte from my reviews. And I would be afraid to put that much information into a single Scrivener document, you know? Yeah. It's a package though. I mean, you can, you can get this stuff out, but I, uh, I just did that paperless book and it, the, the word count I think is about 27,000 words, but the Scrivener file is massive because I have tons of screenshots and other text, And, uh, you know, like you, I have a lot of research for, I don't know how many, maybe 20 words for every one that gets written. I don't know. There's a lot of research I do. Did you put the stuff. movies in there too? No, I did not. I just saved the movies to a folder and then put them in because that was kind of a separate part. You know, that, that goes into iBooks author at the end. Yeah. I've, I've occasionally have movies in my things as well. And there's always like umpteen versions of that movie because I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm editing video. So I have to, I, I want it to, 
I obsess over like the video would be looking just so, and then I realize it has to be in flash for everyone to see it, and it looks gross, and get, yeah. get upset about that. But <laughs> that's we not as true as it used to be, thankfully. Yeah, I, li- yeah. I like the little videos you put in these uh, operating system reviews. These, you know, it, it, they're nice because they're they're very small, just a little, you know, just very just focused on the little part of the screen that you want us to see. And I'm all for interactivity. And and I really, I guess I said it earlier, but I love the little inside jokes you put in with the little footnotes. I know you've, I think you've kind of done less of that in the most more recent reviews. I've just been better at hiding it. Uh, I used yeah. to be more obvious uh, in, in my youth. Now, these days, there are, I, I always think someday when I retire from doing Mac OS 10 reviews, I'll do something where I go back through all my other reviews and f- provide annotation for all of the references because there are hidden links. You know, if you, you wouldn't know if you moused over this particular word in this sentence, it doesn't look like a link, but when you mouse over it, your cursor will change to a pointer. And if you were to click on it, it would take you somewhere, or there's a tooltip, or. This this title is actually a pop culture reference that's obscure, and really, you don't need them. Like They're not part of the review in terms of the message. They're just there to keep me amused as I do it. And I think people pick up maybe, you know, other nerds pick up maybe 1% or 2% of the things that they happen to recognize, and that's good enough for me. Those are mo- yeah. mostly for me. We've had a couple of people write in with recommendations of basically what can you do better in, in meetings to take notes, and I don't know if it's along the same context. We've had some people recommend tools like Note that will allow you to record the audio, although I'm sure if you got caught recording audio at WWC, they, yeah, I think they would frown on that. Problems with that. They probably would frown on that. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, do you have any plans for any to do anything different this year? Like add an extra. Are you still going to go with the iPad plan this year? Are you thinking about adding external keyboard to that? If if typing on the iPad screen was an issue, do you think that would speed you up at all? Yeah, or I've been debating. Would it just become a, a space and a portability concern? So it, an 11 inch air would be ideal, but I don't have the budget right now to buy myself a new computer. Uh, but I. I did have planned to buy myself an iPad. Uh, and I was like, okay, so if I get the iPad, I'm kind of back to where I was. Just last year, I stole my wife's iPad to go, and she really doesn't want me to take her, her iPad with me again. So uh, you know, this year, I had budgeted that I'm going to buy myself an iPad, and I haven't yet, but I, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, all right, so if I get an iPad, what if I just get the little Bluetooth keyboard? And then I'm like, all right, now I need a case to sort of connect them into a poor man's 11-inch MacBook Air so they're not flopping around, because you're just in, like, those little conference seats, and, and you know, you don't have even room for your stuff, really. So... Um, what am I? The reason I switched to the iPad is because it's much easier to be mobile and you know go from session to session and take the thing out and take notes and uh, you know than it is to have a full fledged laptop on your lap trying to type. So I think my type and with that ten hour battery, you got a full day. Oh yeah, and that's the other thing. Like I'm not constantly looking for a plug and everything. So I think an iPad with a Bluetooth keyboard and a case that puts it into a little fake laptop may be what I go with. But I think also last year what it proved to me is despite the fact that I am not a good typist on the iPad, it's good enough. Like I, I, I didn't feel like I missed that many things because of my typing skills. They were ugly looking and I had to go back and fix them, but I could tell what I wrote. So I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet, but uh, I, I think an 11 inch air would be ideal because it's got the portability smallness and, and close to the battery life of, uh, an iPad if I just mostly do typing. Uh, but that's not in the budget. So maybe yeah, next if you year. Do, if you do go iPad with a Bluetooth keyboard, I strongly recommend the, I think it's N-Case makes it, it's called the Origami. And it's a it's a case for your Bluetooth keyboard, for the Apple Bluetooth keyboard. Yep. It's a little cover. And it, it unzips out and it folds together like a little Origami bird, but it, it props up your iPad in the iPad, in the keyboard case. It's fascinating. I, I use it. That's the one I use, and I love it. Yeah, I've been collecting links to those to see. And those those things are expensive, though. It's like you add a hundred dollars to the price of your iPad, so you can get a really good case to connect the 
I think the origami is about yeah. thirty bucks. I don't think I paid that much. Well, for it's it. thirty for the origami, and then another sixty for the Bluetooth keyboard. Yeah, I mean, it, you're it adds up. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Like, how much am I going to spend all told on this iPad three? Could I just get eleven inch Air? I don't know. So so far, I've just been procrastinating, but I'm, I'm giving thoughts to possible options. But worst case, if I do exactly what I did last year, it was it was sufficient. You know. Yeah. If you do go with eleven inch Air, you may want to play a little bit with Scrivener. It may be. It may, it may suck you in. Well, you know, I, I love that. I, I am very drawn to it. And when I did a little, I, I used to do more of this and less so now, but I do a little bit of writing for Macworld Magazine. And for some reason, because I'm old or something, when I write for a print magazine, I like, like, I, I tend to do it more in Scrivener, mostly because I guess I know I can't do like JavaScript or hyperlinks. Uh, and so what's the point of me using BBEdit, which is my normal writing tool where I have the live HTML preview and stuff, because I'm not going to do any links. And yeah. I will write for print, basically, in Scrivener in full screen mode. And that makes me feel like I'm writing for, for a piece of paper magazine. And, That's interesting. And, and really, it has nothing to do with Scrivener's features. It just, like, I picked Scrivener uh, long before I even they revised the version 2 because it had the full screen mode that I found most visually appealing. Yeah. And so well, it's 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 really good at storing research that, and which is what you do a lot of. So play with it; you may find it works for you. The um, but that BB Edit is a good application to talk about because I felt I, I talked to you before the show that we have not fairly represented BB Edit. Every time we have a programmer on the show, they talk about TextMate and or Xcode, um, but we've never had someone who who you know earns their living or pays for their shoes with BB Edit. And I thought you could talk a little bit about about that application. Yeah, BBEdit is what I use. It's, it's the application that spans both these sides of my life. Uh, I use it for all of my programming, not because it's anything that my employers endorse, but just simply because it's the tool I want to use, and I've been lucky enough in every job that I've had to be able to choose my own tools in this way. And so that's where I write my code, and that, I think, is a standard use of BBEdit, not that uncommon, especially if you're doing web development as I am, because you can do the coding part of it for the server side. You can also do the HTML, the JavaScript, the CSS. Like, BBEdit spans the entire web stack in terms of its ability and feature set. Uh, and then for my writing, maybe non-programmers don't write that much in BBEdit, but I, I use it for my writing because I write in HTML, simply because it's just what I'm used to. And BBEda has a great live preview window that you just leave open that shows you the rendered version of your HTML. Uh, and so I will write in HTML, and I can pretty much look at the HTML and read it, but when I actually want to read what I wrote, I read it off the preview window and, you know, check the links and do all the other stuff uh, and syntax check it and everything like that. So I use it as a prose writing application, but that only works if you write it in HTML, I guess. Uh, and so this one application... I'm basically in every single day of my working life because I'm in it all day at work, and if I'm doing anything recreational at home, uh, I'm in it there as well. I think if you have a lot of people on now, they talk about like TextMate and stuff. They must be they're either converts from BBEdit or they're very young programmers because back in the day, BBEdit was the only game in town. You either were a Unix guy and you used Emacs or VI or something like that, and in that realm, I, w I was a Unix guy and I, I chose Emacs out of those two editors. But BBEdit has always been the one I prefer. So I'll use Emacs if I have to, but if I have a real GUI in front of me, I want to use BBEdit. Uh, and I guess over the years I've kept using it because it has every feature that I, I want it to have, with the exception of programmability, which, you know, Emacs is a programmable text editor, and you can basically do whatever the heck you want with it because you can write code that is a sibling to the code that implements the actual application itself. Uh, I don't want to go that far, but 
uh, in BB Edit, the features that I wanted to have are there and they work very well. Uh, it's been very reliable. It's been high performance, and it has spanned the decades. It's gone from you know when we were in classic macOS, and it's made the transition into macOS 10. So never have I been without this application. And to this day, I find, I mean I try every new text editor. I've tried TextMate. I try you know Chocolat and and all these other uh, text editors that are out there. Every new one that comes out, I always give it a spin. But it's very hard to get off text editors once you get into them because your fingers kind of get programmed to. You know, I've got all my scripts there, all my keyboard shortcuts. It's heavily customized, and I still feel like I'm only using probably 1% of this entire application, but I really like that 1%, and it's just rock-solid, high-performance, reliable, uh, and it gets better with every version. So uh, it's going to take a lot to get me off of BBEdit ever. Yeah, that's the thing about BBEdit is it seems like it continues to evolve. For a program as old as it is, they don't rest on their laurels. I mean, they're always aggressively looking to make it better. And trimming old features as well. Like, there are things that BBEdit used to do that they've cut out, um, and some of them even like, oh, why are you cutting out that feature? I used that one. But they, they have either, uh, either it has lost relevance or they have a better replacement. So it's not, it's not as if they just continue to add features and then at the end it's got a bazillion features. They're not afraid to leave stuff behind and say, no, we're not doing it that way anymore. That doesn't make sense in a Mac OS X world, so uh, uh, we're leaving that behind. And even when they change uh, remove some sort of feature from the UI because it was so uh, rarely used. One nice thing that they'll do is provide, still provide a way for you to set a value in a property list to get that behavior back, like the expert preferences. Like it's, it's truly a nerd's editor uh, because, like, oh, I can imagine going to a help document for for a text editor made for normal people that's going to have a bunch of things that you have to write on the command line. You know, defaults, write com dot barebones dot bbedit dot whatever. Like, who's gonna People don't even know what the terminal is or what I'm supposed to do with that or what it does, and it just looks like scary code. But BBEdit knows what its audience is. So you, wanna, you want back that obscure preference that we decided was not important enough to have a GUI for anymore? You can get it back. Just fire off this uh, you know, defaults write command, and you've got it back. Yeah, and it's interesting comparing that to something like Microsoft Word, which also is a very old application where they've never pulled a feature out. I think they have. They've, they've tried. Like, the ribbon thing was a big refinement of, like, we've gone too far, <laughs> and we need to pull it back together. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I bet I bet they probably haven't dropped features as much as changed their uh, appearance in the UI. Because there was, like, the, the peak or the... Or the uh, the low point of Word was when they were just kept adding things to that toolbar on top, and every time they added a feature, you get another row, and eventually they had that uh, humorous screenshot where they showed, this is what Microsoft Word looks like with every toolbar visible, and there was like two lines of text available on your yeah. on your then 640 before 80 screen. That's when they realized they had to revise stuff, but you're probably right that most of those features are still where they're just uh, shown to the user in a, a more reasonable manner. So when you write these uh, large uh, documents for your or your reporting or your Ars Technica stuff on BBEdit, you're, you're just writing in HTML? Yep. Okay. All right, let's take a moment and thank our exclusive sponsor for this podcast, and that is Smile. Smile is the maker of some of my favorite software for the Mac and for iOS, including PDF Pen for the iPad. Now, I had the opportunity this week to recommend PDF Pen for the iPad to one of my senior partners, who's maybe not the most tech-savvy person out there, uh, he was going to this conference, and they sent him this this big old clunky, you know, three ring binder that had about seven hundred pages worth of stuff that they may or may not go over. And he had to be prepared to comment and make notes and give opinions on the things in this binder. So he had to take it with him, but he was not happy about this. So he comes into my office and he says, "Isn't there a way that I can get this stuff on my iPad so that I don't have to drag it around?" And I said, "Well, yeah, there sure is." 
He said, but I need to be able to make notes on it and highlight things and, and write on it and do all kinds of things with it. But I can't do that, right? I'll have to like take notes on a pad of paper and bring them back. I said, well, no, not exactly. And I pulled out my iPad and I showed him PDF pen and showed him how easy it was to pull up a PDF, how you can scroll through the pages, how you can highlight sections, how you can, if you've got a stylus, which he did, just write notes directly on the iPad, how you can circle things and make annotations. And he pulled out his iPad and within about 30 seconds, he had already bought the app. It was amazing. He just thought this was magical. And I think it really is. Yeah, I had a similar work experience where I was modifying a contract on my Mac and the client came in and we had a meeting and I hadn't really intended to discuss the contract with the client, but it seemed like a good time to do it. So I opened up my iPad, which I bring in meetings with me and just broadcast to the television in the room with AirPlay and just opened PDF pin, which has the iCloud synchronization. So it immediately just pulled the most recent version I was working on on my Mac down to the iPad and I looked brilliant, and I, I like that. Right. Now, PDF Pen for iPad is $14.99. It's available in the App Store. And if you want PDF Pen for your Mac, there are two versions for that as well. There's PDF Pen for $60 or PDF Pen Pro for $100. And the desktop version brings some additional features. Of course, they are all ready for Lion. They've got full screen mode. They bring OCR support. They also allow you to annotate and edit your PDFs. They allow you to uh, redact information in PDFs if you want to do that. And with the Pro version, you can also create your own forms, convert websites into PDFs. And David, I know one of your favorite features, create table of contents in PDFs for better organization. Yes, I love my table of contents. So especially with this iCloud sync, PDF Pen and PDF Pen for iPad are just an awesome one-two punch. I just don't know how I get stuff done without it. Yeah, it, it's quickly become my default uh, PDF application for those key documents that I really want to work on. I just love the idea of going to out to T and opening up my iPad and continuing where I left off. That's kind of the, the whole, in my mind, that's the ideal cloud solution is escaping your office and being somewhere else, but being still productive. And the iCloud integration on PDF pen really makes that possible. You should go check it out if you haven't yet. You can find more information over at smilesoftware.com, and we'll be talking more about Smile later in the show. Now, I've I've heard that you write, but that you also dictate. How much of these, are you dictating a lot of these reviews, or are you just straight typing? How much dictation are you doing? Because I know David and I are big fans of dictation. I used to write all of them, but uh, my wrists have slowly gave out over the years, and now I have... uh, only so much typing in me per day that I know I can manage without causing myself injury. Uh, so I try for for the past several years for my Mac OS 10 reviews for the first pass for the bulk of the the words going out, I am dictating it. Uh, and I've tried dictating it with HTML and that doesn't work that well. So what I mostly yeah, do I'm thinking that wouldn't work very well. Yeah, what I mostly <laughs> do is dictate it out as prose. Uh, but I this is probably the worst possible way to dictate, but this is the way I do it. I dictate and then I go back with with the cursor and like select text and and hit my magic keyboard shortcuts and filters and everything to put in the anchors to put the p tags around stuff to do all the HTML stuff that I want to do to put in the image tags all that stuff 
while I'm dictating, which as anyone who uses Dragon Dictate, formerly Mac Speech Dictate on a Mac knows, it gets very angry if you try to edit while you're dictating. And it can yeah, very, that is that is bad. And it can because it loses track of where the cursor is yeah. and then bad things happen. So I've learned like how to tiptoe around its idiosyncrasies in such a way that that's still productive. Uh, it still is a very painful process, but simply being able to dictate instead of typing those sentences is just a tremendous decrease in the amount of typing after just to get the words out. And sometimes I will dictate and then write three words, then dictate the rest of the sentence. And that like, I'm, I'm intermixing typing and adding markup with dictating. And it probably looks insane to somebody watching, but it, I, I know from when I say, Oh, let me try to try writing today without dictating. It is much worse for my wrist. So I, dictation saves my wrist. Uh, I would never be able at this point, I would never be able to write these long reviews without dictation. It's interesting because when I do it, I just dictate. I, I look at it as the um, as the lousy first draft. I was going to use a different word, but I'm not sure we can use that word. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just look at it as the lousy first draft. So I dictate and I just like crank that text in there, and I don't even look at the screen. I just dictate it out, and so I'll, I'll put a thousand or two thousand words in, and then I'll turn off the mic or you know exit and put it into my text editor and then I'll just proofread it there with the keyboard and the mouse. I don't I don't try to proofread with the dictation tools because they don't work. The PC version, the Mac version, none of them work really for dictation. It's slow and ponderous and half the time it doesn't get it right. But for just getting in those words the first time through, it's really useful. But boy, I've never tried to go through and make little changes and corrections while dictating. It seems to me that you could be asking for a lot of pain and suffering that way. Well, I think actually the interleaving helps because I make, make no mistake. The first time I go through something, it is the crappy first draft. <laughs> like yeah. it's not perfect, you know, but even just to get that draft out, I spend a tremendous amount of time editing, just tremendous way, way too long to try to get it. So it's not so crappy. Uh, and I find if I save all that to the end of the fight, like if I dictate out an entire page and then go back to edit, that editing session is too much sustained mouse clicking and typing. Like it's better for me to interleave it, to have a rest period when I'm talking and you know, that's that feels better to me. So just just getting the inside baseball. So if you were to dictate you do dictate like into BB edit at this point? Oh yes, yes. Dictating into so BB you dictate edit. like a paragraph in and then you'll just go in and make the changes. While I'm dictating, I will, in the middle of a sentence, go back to a previous sentence, change a word, and then continue the sentence I was in. It's kind of like my hands are editing and my mouth and brain are continuing the current sentence. It's it's a strange process. <laughs> You're a rebel. You're a rebel. I, I don't know how you could do that. I just arrived at that. And the main thing is, like, when I'm dictating, I spend a lot of time in the middle of a sentence where I don't know where I'm going with the sentence that I'm thinking. And while I'm thinking, sometimes my eye will wander over to another thing, and it's just it's a very slow and painful process. Occasionally, it comes out in a nice burst, and I get a couple of solid paragraphs. Uh, but a lot of the time, especially for the introduction and the conclusion, it's just a it's just a, a slog. Uh, that if you were to watch me doing it, it would seem like a crazy person speaking sentence fragments into the computer. Because I'll even dictate when I go back and edit. I'll go back and, and select six words, delete them, and then dictate those a, a new set of words, and then resume where I was in the middle of the previous sentence. It's not yeah, I, you know coherent. I would love to see a screencast of you doing that. <laughs> it would be too embarrassing. No, I just I didn't know that was even possible with that application. Yeah, it does. It does lose track sometimes, but. I started using the. Uh, they also have a, a version of the Mac App Store, which is fifty dollars. It's called Dragon Express, 
and I bought it. I'm kind of liking that because it's a dedicated dictation window. And because you're does, just dictating the text in there and then copy it and pasting it to wherever you want it to go, right? Yeah, and the, the one of the problems I have with Dragon, the, the main the good version of Dragon is I'll forget that it's live and I'll go click in another window and then I'll say something or someone will walk in the door, I'll answer the phone, and then all of a sudden stuff will start happening on my computer. And uh, I like the idea of having just one window that I dictate into, and once I click out of it, it's essentially the, the mic is no longer hot for that. I got a story, but I, I do it different than you. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to say before I start dictating anything. We actually did a show on it recently, and uh, so I, I'm okay just kind of cranking through it. But uh, I, I honestly didn't know you could pull that off. I'm going to experiment with it because that's kind of a nice trick if you can do it. I would think you would have to keep putting the cursor back at the end. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, here are the the tricks to getting that to work as well as it's able to work. The first one is, uh, although the newer versions of Dragon are better about this, have a hotkey for turning the mic on and off. It's essential. Uh, and my my little story behind the hotkey thing is I, I chose F19 as the hotkey, which is the upper right-hand key on a Apple aluminum extended keyboard, simply because it's very easy to find. It's the upper right corner, right? You can't miss it. You can feel for it yeah. without looking. And I do toggle the mic a lot, although the new version is a little bit better about going to sleep when it senses that you haven't done anything in a while. Uh and when they upgraded from Mac Speech Dictate to Dragon, when you know whenever they that acquisition happened and they gave a new version, it stopped allowing me to set F19 as the key. Uh, you'd go into the dialog and it would be like, double-click this area, then type the key you would like to be the menu toggle key, and I would type F19 and nothing would happen. It wouldn't even register that I was hitting a key. So I sent an email to support and I said, hey, you know, in, in Mac Speech Dictate, I used to use, like to use F19. Upgraded to Dragon Dictate, now I can't use F19. Can you help me out? And the support person sent a reply back and says, there is no F19 key on keyboards. And so I took a picture of my keyboard <laughs> showing the F19 key and emailed it back to them. Uh, they never did. So you took a, you took a picture like a uh, digital picture. Yeah, a digital picture of the F19 key on my keyboard and said, there it is. I found it. Uh, but they never actually did fix that bug. So what I had to do was figure out how, how uh, the key binding was encoded in the uh, property lists for the application and create my own encoded version of what I knew to be the key code for F19. It was actually quite cumbersome. And I added a, a reply to the support thread saying, for all you people out there, if you want to bind F19, paste in this giant blob of uh, base64 you know, binary data, and you will get F19 to work. But I don't think they ever actually fixed it. So they're not particularly yeah. responsive to, uh, to feedback. Well, it's tough. You know, they're a big company. They're on multiple platforms. This is just one of their things. But it is the best engine by far. Yeah, that's that's feature. why I keep using it. Like, I mean, it's it's the only one that I found that that whatever it was before uh, the Mac before they were using the Dragon engine, that was just not very good. And this yeah. this is very very good. I'm always amazed at how good it is. Of course, it helps that I'm running out on a Mac Pro, probably. Sure. So what else do you use to manage kind of the, the daily grind of everything in your life? You've obviously got to stay on top of all this information that's going on about the Mac and about uh, the ecosystem and especially to talk about it on the podcast. How do you manage all the information that's coming in? So I used to be a big Net Newswire user. Uh, that was my main view on the world. And I had subscribed to way too many feeds and I would sort of manage them. The main activity I did in Net Newswire was marking things as red. Not actually reading them. <laughs> because I'd yeah. go through a thing and I'd, I'd look at the, I'd open up two or three of the articles that I was interested in in NetNewsWire's tabs. Like it would open the web page and those little tabs that had along the, the right hand side showing the thumbnails. 
And then I would mark everything else in that feed as red. And I would more work my way through the day's news that way. And then I would build up this list of tabs, and then I would go back through them. Uh, eventually, I had to declare de facto tab bankruptcy because I had built up a list of tabs that was just ridiculously long. And it's obvious that I wasn't going to go back through every single one of those things. And I was just uh, filing things away to never look at them. And so I slowly transitioned off of NetNewsWire, although I still do use it uh, when I have free time. But now it's more of a luxury uh, than a, a tool to sort through stuff. I transitioned to, with the dawn of Twitter, where I both participate and read frequently, I do keep up with my Twitter timeline. I try not to follow that many people so I can keep up with everything. And I follow people who point me to the things that I would have found myself in that newswire, sort of a, you know, allow other people to find the interesting things for me. And what I do from the various Twitter clients these days is if I don't read the article right there, I send it to Instapaper, which I can do from my iOS client or from the Mac client, uh, and Instapaper has become my repository for things that I need to read to keep up on the day's news. I still find myself sometimes falling behind, but I find catching up on Instapaper is a little bit easier. Like, I can sit down for a good hour-long Instapaper session and just knock things off my list. You know, go through them, read them, or if it's out of date, you know, get rid of it or whatever. And I like the fact that Instapaper is, is saving the, uh, the full text of the articles and it's searchable so I could find them later. And, yeah. and if something needs to be added to my notes, I add it that way. So... Instapaper is my keeping track of the news thing, and Dropbox has been the other revolution in my life and probably many other people's. I used to use, like, Yojimbo or other kind of mobile-me synced uh, data things to have the same data everywhere. Uh, but Dropbox just, you know, makes the, every application capable of doing that. So everything since Dropbox has appeared, all of my writing and all my documents have always been in Dropbox uh, as yet another redundant backup. Like, I think about how many backups I have. I'm paranoid about backups. I think of how many backups I have of, of the content for, like, my Lion review. So it's in Dropbox, which means it's on every computer that I have Dropbox on, which is at least two Macs in my house plus my Mac at work. So that's three copies. And then at home, I have three... That, that uh, Dropbox thing is backed up to two other hard drives. So that's two more copies that I have there. And then I have an online cloud backup service that's backing up both my Macs at home. So that's two more copies there. And just, you know, the, the number of things that would have to burn down for me to lose all of my content for my Mac OS X review is significant. Uh, and I like that. And I like the fact that Dropbox syncs it everywhere. So that is where I keep all the artifacts of my process, and, and they're always available to me everywhere. So no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, if I see something that's relevant to this thing, I can somehow get it into the funnel so that it all lands eventually in, in the review. Sometimes I just sit there and, and think back about how hard all this was before Dropbox. I just can't believe how much it's revolutionized everything. Yeah, and like Yojimbo was pretty darn good for this. Uh, and in fact, you can have Yojimbo use Dropbox as well, which I'm going to be forced to do as soon as Mobile Me goes away. Uh, but the just the fact that there was a program that I needed to launch, and that uh, initially there wasn't. I don't know if there's there is there an iOS client now. Like when iOS first came out, like well, okay, well I'd like to add this to my Yojimbo document, but I can't because I'm not here. You know, I'm not near Yojimbo. I'm not, or I'm not on a Mac at all. Uh, and then it kind of falls by the wayside. Having having the thing that's shared everywhere be kind of a dumb repository of files uh, is uh, is nice. Again, another lowest common denominator type thing. No matter where you are, you can get something into Dropbox somehow. Now have have you found a place in your life for iCloud sync services yet? Have you used much of that? They've got their work cut out for them to, uh, for me anyway, to fill the needs that I'm currently filling with Dropbox because they're, I don't think they're going for the same kind of market uh, in terms of a platform-agnostic, synchronized repository of cloud data. 
they don't want to be a folder. They want to be something that's not a folder. Uh, yeah, some, it's just there. Right. And that's, and, and of course, you know, a nerdy, you know, Mac power users, you might say like they, we want, we want a folder because we understand folders, but we are in the vast minority with that understanding. So I think iCloud might actually, if it works well and it's reliable, end up being better for most people than Dropbox is because we all love Dropbox, but I try to get my parents on the drop Dropbox bandwagon and they can kind of handle it. If I put the Dropbox folder in their dock and they kind of understand that that's synchronized, but they only have one computer anyway, but it's, it's still confusing to them. Like when they're in an open save dialog box, to how to find where the Dropbox is, even if it's in the sidebar, like the iCloud UI, I think will probably suit more users than Dropbox does. But for me personally, I'm glad that Dropbox is still there. And, and I'll see I'll, it, if iCloud, you know, works as well as Dropbox does and it turns out to be as easy and is available everywhere because really I don't need it to be available on the PC. I just need it to be available on iOS and Mac OS 10. And I think iCloud will be, uh, you know, I'm willing to give anything a shot, but so far Dropbox is the king. You know, it's interesting. If, if you tell somebody, if you, if you have to tell someone, click on the little icon with the smiley face on it to get them into Finder, <laughs> yeah. th- then they're probably iCloud candidates, right. not Dropbox candidates. But mm-hmm. I find that I'm using iCloud. I, I consider myself a Mac Power user, and I but I still use uh, iCloud services on a couple apps. There's a PDF Pen and um, and Byword are the Byword, two that I, yeah. I really use it on because I really like the idea that you just open it and it's it's synced. There's like there's probably five or ten text files that are really important to me right now, whether it's an article I'm writing or a brief I'm writing or something. And I've been using iCloud for those where I don't have to deal with the process of the syncing. You know, Dropbox-connected text editors do need to sync those files, and I have really a large number of files that they're syncing, so you know, it's really not fair to them that I'm throwing so much at them. But I do like having like a really lean... A text editor just for the hot projects, and it's working out really good for me. So I'm curious to see what you think of that because I, I do think there is a place for it, even for those of us that like Dropbox. I could never see it replacing Dropbox because there's things I do with Dropbox that this just isn't capable of. But uh, for those hot documents, I find it pretty useful. I have to admit, I do have a confidence issue, and when it comes to Apple and online services. Where uh, yeah, that's understandable. They have yeah. there's a lot of trust that just doesn't exist there. Like Dropbox has earned its trust coming from this like vague curiosity to something that I've relied upon for for so long now, and that has not failed me. And Apple services, in particular, I'm thinking of iDisk, uh, has not been reliable or fast or you know useful to me in in any way. iCloud is vastly better, but I still have that kind of wariness about their online services. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take some time. They, I mean, it's been, what, a year now, and we still don't have iCloud support for their, you know, their headline <laughs> applications yeah. on iWork. So it must be kind of hard. Yeah, I don't mind if they, if they, it's a, this is a slow rollout, and I think Mountain Lion will advance this cause significantly. Uh, I don't mind that it's taking them a while to do it. I'd rather have them do it right and do it slowly than rush something out that's not ready. So, it, yeah, you know, I'm patient. Hopefully they'll use some of those big piles of money to <laughs> yeah, you'd think, right? To get it, but you know, it, I think it was you that was saying on your show that you know, it's not necessarily a question of just throwing money at it. I think this stuff is really hard. Yeah, that's true of everything Apple does, and that's why its competitors uh, have such trouble with it. Because if money could buy what Apple has, then tons of other companies would have it too. And uh, the converse is, if money could buy like what Google does well in terms of its operations and server side stuff and scaling. 
everyone would be doing it. Everyone would be indexing the web every single day. That's that's not stuff you can you can't just throw money at it. It's it's a who are you going to hire? Who isn't already working someplace else? How much money would you really need to have? And how do you even know you're hiring the right people? It's because the CEOs of these companies don't know if they're hiring the right people to run their data centers. They just can go by the people's resumes and their experience, and they, they don't understand the technology. You're hiring people to do a job that you could never do yourself and really don't understand. Uh, it's more about building a company. Apple has built a company that attracts the people who are good at the things that Apple is good at, and Google has built a company that attracts the people who are good at Google's you know server-side operation type stuff. Can you hire those yeah. Google people from Apple? I don't think you can because they they want to work. You know, it, the company you build determines who you can get. Yeah, that's true. And and cloud services aren't traditionally the people that are attracted to Apple. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're trying to change that. And this is like what attempt number two or three for their service. They had iTools, they had Dot uh, Mac, they had Mobile Me. Now we have got iCloud. You know, keep keep plugging away, Apple. I guess, but you know, it's not, if it was a money issue, they would have solved it by now. Yeah, well, I think their aim is getting better, and and the limited use I'm I'm putting iCloud through, uh, I'm happy with. Although I wouldn't would never try to sync my 600 simple <laughs> note notes through iCloud. I think that would be pretty terrible. Just a guess. Yeah. Okay. Before continuing, let's take our second sponsorship break and talk about Smile's other great application, Text Expander, and uh, I love me that Text Expander. I use it all the time. It's an application that allows you to create snippets of long text and quickly insert them by typing short bits of text. For instance, if you typed AADD, like address, with an extra A at the beginning, it would drop in your your personal address. So if someone sends you an email and they want to send you you know, a brand new uh, fusion reactor, you can quickly give them your address. Uh, text Expander does a lot more, though, because the, this is an fully developed application. They've got developers working on it at all times. They're always making it better. Uh, one of the best applications for Text Expander that people don't think of, uh, and I talked about this in the paperless book, is naming files. I thought I mean, that was brilliant in the paperless book. I went through and changed a lot of my snippets to, to do that. Yeah, and people wouldn't think about that, but naming files can become really tedious, and if you create a couple snippets, you'll be, you can very efficiently uh, name files, especially if you want to put date uh, in it. I've created some snippets, uh, and Text Expander makes this possible that automatically insert the date. It can be the date that you're making the snippet, or it can be the date that the file was created. And you can put them in whatever order you want. I like to use the year slash or the year hyphen month hyphen date. Not dot. So I've got, I'm sorry? Not dot. No, no dots. Okay. In fact, we got a, a note about that. We should talk about that later. But I put I use the dash in there. So you've got a nice date thing, and I put that at the beginning so you can automatically have the computer organize the files by date. Um, well, you know, using Text Expander, you can have it automatically do that for you. For instance, if I'm going to name a file, uh, I'll have the year, sla- uh, hyphen, month, hyphen, date, and then I will have a description, like maybe it will be a medical expense. And then this is the tricky part where you get the bonus points. You can tell Text Expander to insert the cursor somewhere in the middle. Mm. So, for instance, you could have the year, month, and date that the file was created, medical expense at the end, and the cursor drops right in the center so you can write, you know, teeth cleaning or whatever the medical expense is. So, very quickly, with a very short snippet, you can have the full name of it with the year, the month, date, and you can have a custom field to type in the description. And it's so important to have those 
names be uniform when you're organizing a paperless system because those names can become like tags, they can become keywords, and you want to make sure that for organizational purposes, you get it uniform every single time, and Text Expander helps you do that. And it lets Hazel have a uniform name to base its rules off of, so you could automatically file those things. It's really tricky. I screencasted the whole thing in the book. Go check it out. But this isn't a commercial about the book. This is about Text Expander, and I just cannot get over how often I use it. I have hundreds of these text expander snippets built in. I also use it for, for billing as an attorney. I have to keep records of my billing and I've got uh, snippets that create a markdown version of the, of the matter with just a couple letters and then markdown versions of the specific billing codes that I need to, to file. So as I go through the day, I have a running text file and at the end of the day, I send it off to my secretary and everything gets processed. It's amazing how efficient I am with this stuff, and I uh, I owe it all to Text Expander. Yeah, Text Expander is great for so many things. You can use it not only for file names, not only for billing. You can use it for email signatures, boilerplate language, filling out forms, correcting your typos. Makes me look a lot smarter than I am by automatically fixing those commonly misspelled words. Putting in the date and time, it will even do math. If you put in like yesterday or tomorrow, it will fix those special characters and accented words. They can do all kinds of things. And if you get really geeky, the programmers can even use it to invoke Apple Script and Shell Script. And you know, people like Brett Terpstra can do all kinds of amazing things. Yeah, so you should get it for your Mac. It's $34.95, and you can get it in the Mac App Store, or you can get it from the smilesoftware.com website and you should get the iOS version which is just 4.99 and it works both on the iPhone and the iPad and the cool part is they use Dropbox syncing to keep all those snippets in sync so when you create the snippet for a billing entry or a date code on one device you automatically get it on the other which is really great in fact it's it's frankly a lot better than Apple's own text expansion support in iOS you can find more information about Text Expander at smilesoftware.com. And we thank Smile for being the exclusive sponsor for this episode. Um, so, so, John, in addition to you know, writing with your, uh, your various text editors, tell me some of your favorite apps that you'll have on your, your Mac that you use that you know, just get you through your day. So, let's see. The most important apps on my Mac for pretty much everybody are my web browsers, and that's not a particularly exciting thing to talk about, but I found that my web browser... Safari, Firefox, or Chrome? Yeah, like the, for among nerds, it's interesting because we're constantly thinking, oh, am I using the best web browser? What is the best web browser? Should I be using the, the one that comes with the system? Should I be using Firefox or Chrome or something else? And I have tried every browser, and as a web developer, I have tons of browsers installed. In fact, I remember when I... I upgraded to Lion. I finally deleted Internet Explorer from my applications folder because it doesn't run anymore. Uh, so I've always been, since the dawn of Safari, I've been a Safari-first user. That is my default web browser, simply because it's supported by the platform, and I found that it opens Windows more quickly than in other browsers, and I, I liked that. Uh, I used to use Firefox in addition to it, but mostly because of Firebug, so I could do you know web debugging and stuff. But Chrome has supplanted Firefox, and now I can't remember the last time I launched Firefox. So it's Safari and Chrome as my two primary browsers, uh, with Safari still as the default. But Chrome is where I do my email, and my email has transitioned to Gmail. So my email and calendaring and everything is in a Chrome window using Google services, and I like that fit because Google's obviously optimizing its browser for its services, and it you know ties together nicely there. Uh, and a surprising amount of my day is spent 
in those two things, reading my email, checking my calendar, and uh, and opening web pages. Then I've got a ADM. My uh, can we can we stop there for a minute? Sure. What made you make the transition or pause? I guess what made you make the transition from uh, dedicated apps like you know I don't know if you used Apple Mail or Entourage or iCal or BusyCal or one of those. What made you move to web apps? Yeah, I, I used to be a big proponent of native mail applications. Claris Emailer was my first love, and I followed that team when they went to the Mac Business Units to make Entourage, and I really liked the early versions of Entourage. Uh, later versions of Entourage I like less, uh, and now uh, I'm using uh, Outlook, uh, mostly because of its exchange support for work. You know, work my jobs have usually dictated the use of Exchange, so I had to use something that's an Exchange client. It used to be that you know, Entourage could also talk to Exchange, and it was my preferred native client. Now I'm just using Outlook to talk to the work stuff. And the reason I transition is mostly because of the ubiquity of a web application like Gmail and the server-side rules. So I, used, I get a lot of email, and I had tons of rules, and I hated synchronizing those rules between the various places that I read mail. There was never a good way to do it. I would have to recreate the rules in multiple places, and they would get out of sync. This is mostly in Entourage and emailer and stuff. Well, in, in Gmail, when I set up a filter, it doesn't need to synchronize anywhere because the filter is completely server-side. And yeah. no, no other service, like, it's, it's not just the application, it's the service they provide. And despite the fact that Gmail, you know, it's like, well, I would rather have a native client and the Gmail uh, spam filtering is vastly inferior to spam sieve, which is what I use locally to, to filter my mail and continues to be vastly inferior to spam sieve, uh, the ubiquity and the server-side rules slowly transitioned me over to Gmail. And now... Now I just I just don't launch my native app my native email reader on my Mac anymore. Mostly because Outlook is just so much worse than than Entourage, which was worse than the earlier versions of Entourage. You know, so that's gone downhill. Uh, and I'm just kind of in that Gmail mode. Like I have the keyboard shortcuts, the you know the not unmodified keyboard shortcuts, kind of like when you're reading uh, Usenet news in Tin, or kind of like at Net Newswire for that matter. You know, uh, K J and K right, and yeah. and you know. Uh, S for spam, A to, go to archive, you know, uh, U for selecting unread. Like, I have a bunch of bindings, some custom, some default, and I can mostly use Gmail without touching the mouse just with single keystrokes. Uh, but the ubiquity and, and the server-side rules are really what got me. And it happened. It didn't happen overnight. It happened, I just slowly found that I was no longer launching my native client. I still do use my native client as basically a local backup of all my mail. So when I launch Outlook, it pulls down all my mail from everywhere. Oh, and that's the other thing that got me on Gmail. I have 20 different email accounts, and Gmail absorbs them all, can pull from all those different servers, and I can send through them as SMTP servers. So I can send email as if it's coming through. You know, I will send through the Ars Technica SMTP server, and when you get the email, it will look like it came from Ars Technica because it did, but I used Gmail to send it. Uh, and, you yeah. know, it's the same in reverse. So it is just there, absorbed everything else. There's some really nice features about that. Like if you've got old accounts, it will suck them in very easily. And and there really is no server side rule solution without something like Gmail. Uh, you know they've got it. The uh, well, it was in Mobile Me, and now it's in iCloud. There are some r- very rudimentary server based rules you can do if you go to iCloud.com and log into your email. But it's nothing like the granular control you can get with Gmail. And I also think the on iOS. The, going to the Gmail mobile web page in iOS, I find that faster than using the native mail client because I have so much mail. It, it, that little web page loads faster than I can see my inbox in the native mail client. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just loading less data, I, I, but it's just it's just faster. So even on iOS, I use the Gmail web interface to look at my email. 
I can I can see an argument for that. I mean, if you're going to use Gmail, just use it as it's meant to be in the browser. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I'm still continually evaluating, and this this was a slow, gradual transition, and I may transition to something else later. I just cannot get I, you know if the listeners of the show know I I just cannot get over the whole idea of seeing ads that relate to the stuff in my <laughs> text, even though I I completely understand that there's not a person reading it, and it's just. I don't even see. Computer. I don't even see the ads though. I have a, a bad case of ad banner blindness. So much so that I have many times embarrassed myself by sending an insistent email that something should be appear on a web page, and it was there. I just literally did not see it because it looked too much like an ad, or was near something that looked like an ad. So the the ads don't bother me. Yeah, I was at MacWorld uh, with Merlin Mann, and and he does like this crazy stuff with Gmail <laughs> that it's really amazing how fast he works through his email with all his little scripts and server rules and everything. Yeah, and again, the main activity that I do in Gmail is marking things as read without reading them. <laughs> okay. Because I well, at least you're consistent. I subscribe to a lot of lists, and like I skim the, the subject lines. Is there anything I'm interested in reading this thing? Nope. Mark is read. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the other applications, uh, ADM for instant message, uh, because it's a nice multi-protocol editor. The UI annoys me sometimes, but I still haven't found anything better. Uh, colloquy for IRC. I idle in a lot of IRC channels for both work and pleasure and podcasting. Uh, and so I have a, a set of those that's a, a set of windows that are constantly open in the background. Uh, VMware to do my work and to experiment with different OSs and everything like that. Uh, BB Edit's always open. iTunes is always open for music. And that's about it for the apps I run every day. Uh, and then I have, you know, various little faceless utilities that go in the mix as well. Now, during the day job, are you working on it? What type of Mac do you work on? I have a, a older Mac Pro. I think it's like a 2009 model, mm-hmm. a single CPU. But I really wanted to have a, a Mac that could have two internal uh, hard drives so I could have a local backup because yeah. I don't trust work to back my stuff up. Time Not machine. Not a bad idea. Yeah. Not a bad idea. And then do you use a, a large screen or... I would like to use a larger screen now. At home, I have an old, <laughs> I have an old twenty-three inch. I really wanted uh, to buy the thirty inch, but uh, it hadn't been updated in forever when I bought this twenty-three inch, and so I figured oh, I'm not going to buy that old thirty inch. Little did, it still hasn't yeah, been updated yeah. in forever. Little did I know it would never be updated again, and they would simply replace it with a twenty-seven inch. Uh, so yeah. I have a twenty-three inch uh, at home, and at work I have the 24-inch LED display, which is the same resolution as this 23. My wife has the 27 over at her desk. I would still like a 30. Uh, I'm a, I'm a single-screen person, not a multiple. I've had multiple screens in the past, and I guess I just don't like turning my head. I would buy probably a single 35-inch monitor. I don't know. Maybe eventually the single monitor gets so big that I have to turn my well, head. Well, now but... you're, you're just in the realm of buying TVs. Well, no, I mean, I want the pixel density to be the same. So I like to, like, like 3,500 by 2,700. Like, sure, sign me up, give me that screen, and make it 35 inches. But, yeah, I like big screens. But so f- I've been on 1920 by 1,200 for many years now, and I get by, but I feel cramped. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I had two monitors for a little while, and it didn't work for me because I'm looking at this black line right in front of my face all day. <laughs> didn't you got to put one to the center and one yeah. offside? Yeah, yeah, I tried that too. I, I'm like you. I just prefer to have a, a big screen. Yeah, I feel like I, I just don't end up looking at that other one over there, and it just I'd rather just have one big screen than two small ones. And I think two big screens might be too much. I would I don't like losing track of where things are, but. 1920 by 1200 is too small for me, so I 
I got that application Moom, M-O-O-M. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it does a really nifty job of resizing windows. So on a 27-inch screen, you can have a lot of information on the screen at once, and it, it'll remember and reset those up. I'll put that in the notes, by the way. That's one thing I've wanted Mac OS X to do for a long time, which I know it will never do because it's a total nerd feature, is I think either that the OS should have better features for anal retentive people to arrange their windows. Uh, you know, this is the one you should check well, out. Well, I've seen a lot of third-party utilities, but they're all about make your window a quarter of the screen, a third of the screen, tile them five across and three down. I mean that I get to pick the size of the window, kind of like snap to grid for windows, and then also snap to grid for adjustable space between windows, right? So there's yeah. the grid for window size, and there's a separate grid for the space between windows. So I could sort of make the make the arrangement that I want and not be driven crazy because I'm a crazy person by the fact that the, that the gap between my two colloquy windows is one pixel wider between these two than it is between those two. This is really not a, not a feature that Apple is spending a lot of time thinking about, but if you're like me and have problems with things being out of order, I would like more help. Like some, some individual apps used to have that. Remember when they did like magnetic windows where the palettes would snap together with, with like a fixed two pixel gap between them and stuff? Uh, yeah. I think that should be OS wide. Uh, but it's really, it's really a pretty obscure feature, and it's only for people with serious mental problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Moom allows you when you hit the um, the resize button, the little green button. Um, it allows you to pick. It put you can set it up so it puts a grid, and you can literally outline on the grid where you want it. And it allows you, I believe, to set a pixel um, gap between windows. But I don't think it would allow you to drag them into that. But maybe I'm just missing out on that feature. You know, that's an interesting point, really. The uh, the Mac App Store has made it possible for people to make tiny little utilities and actually make money on them. Uh, so I think we've had kind of a, an abundance of riches the last six months or so with all these developers releasing just little small problem apps that you buy for a couple bucks. I think we may even do a show on it at some point. Do you have any apps like that that you like that now that we've got this Mac App Store that that are scratching an itch for you? I've got actually the opposite of that, which is really small apps that are kind of in the the dark underbelly of Mac software that most people don't know about and I say that oh even better I say that even because better. they're made by people who aren't really interested in selling software all right so both these applications I'm going to talk about now I, I put some notes in for these because I figured these are the weird ones is they're not for sale like you know on the Mac App Store the source code is available for them under very open licenses. You know, one of them is a BSD MIT license. I think the other one might even be GPL. Uh, and the people, like, they're not, if they are professional software developers, they're not interested in this particular thing. It's just kind of like they threw them out there. So the first one is a luxury that I enjoy because people know me from my Mac OS X articles. At one point, I complained somewhere online, I don't remember where it was, that so I've got this Mac Pro, and it's stuffed with four hard drives, and I keep most of them unmounted uh, most of the time, or at least at least two of them unmounted, because they, you know, I have my Super Duper clone, which I don't want mounted, because so it can't accidentally get erased or something, and then I have a, a Windows partition and some other stuff, right? I want them unmounted, but I frequently want to mount them. And I'm like, geez, I don't like loading disk utility to mount that disk, and it's very difficult to set up a command line alias to mount them because they, depending on how your system startup is, they might be under different device IDs and trying to get them on fixed device. You know, it was just like, why can't I just have a little thing in the menu bar that shows me all the hard drives that are connected to my computer in a little list, and then I can just mount them by selecting them and see which ones are mounted or unmount them or whatever. And so somebody, uh, Brent Gulanowski, wrote a tiny menu bar program called Remount 
basically because I complained about it and said, here you go. And you launch it and it puts a little icon on your menu bar and it shows you all your internal hard drives and their names, even when they're not mounted. And you just select one and it mounts it. And this is one of the greatest pieces of software that's ever come into my life. Not because it's, it does something amazing or anything, but just because it's like, I thought something should exist and I didn't have the skills or knowledge to write it myself and someone just wrote it. And he doesn't care about it, and it's not, he's not like he's interested in selling this program. He said, here you go, you, here's the source code. If you're interested in, in giving it away or hosting it someplace else, do whatever you want with it. Here you go. And just solved a problem and put it out there. Yeah, and it's, I think it's like, it, doesn't, it has one menu, and it shows internal hot. Like, there's no features, there's no preferences, there's no anything. Like, but it does exactly what I had I, I envisioned, something that I would like to exist, and it existed. And no one's going to hear about that program, and it's not going to be for sale in the Mac App Store. And if it was, everyone would give it one star because it's not worth 99 cents. I would pay, you know, $15 for this application because it exactly fills my need. Uh, and the other one is what I ended up with after a very long search for something to do multiple clipboards for me. Everything does multiple clipboards, it seemed like. Quick Server does multiple clipboards. LaunchBar does multiple clipboards. BBEdit itself does multiple clipboards. Tons of different applications for multiple clipboards. And most of them did too much for me. Or I didn't like the user interface, or some little niggling thing bothered me about them. And despite the fact that I own half of them, like I have Quicksilver, and I had been using that for multiple clipboards, but it bothered me. And BBEdit and multiple clipboards only helps me when I'm in BBEdit, and I don't use LaunchBar, and these other ones that I tried, I didn't like the menu bar icons, and didn't feel like, you know. I ended up on JumpCut, which is available, at, you know, again, the source code is available. I don't even know, is it for sale, or if I paid for it? I don't, I don't even remember, but many people have made... Uh, their own variants of jump cut because the source code is available. So people said, Oh, don't use jump cut. Use this variant of jump cut, which changes the UI in this particular way or whatever. Uh, but I've been very happy with jump cut. I've been using it for a couple of years now. And so I try to keep icons out of my menu bar, but if you look at my menu bar now, besides the Apple menu icons, like a mobile me sync and uh, the VPN and the time machine, I see a Dropbox jump cut, Twitter remount, and now Skype because I launched Skype and it shoves the menu bar up there. Uh, yeah. I, I was just looking. I wrote about Jump Cut on November twenty fifth, two thousand seven. Yeah, it still works. This app is, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a great app. Yeah, it's free. You know, you just install it, and it just catches text. At least the last time I used it. it yeah, did, and it has a nice, which is all I need. Configurable keyboard shortcut, configurable history of uh, of you know the the paste of what you've got on the clipboard, and like those those two little utilities, just. You're not going to find them on the Mac App Store. You're not going to find them by looking at a fancy website of an established Mac developer. It's just some people who wanted to do something in their spare time and threw these little things out there, and I'm very grateful that they're there. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you said that your wife has an iPad, but you'd like to use it as well. Yes. How is that fitting into all these things you're doing? At home, the iPad is... Let's see. Do I use it for anything that's not recreational? It, it it's more a relaxing device to use because I'm at the, I'm on a couch or something or I'm in bed. Uh, so mostly what I'm using it to do is just reading Twitter, looking at my email, doing some web browsing. The only vaguely work related thing is I, I when I want to have a serious catching up on Instapaper session to go through research and stuff. Uh, if I can get the iPad, I will do it on that. Because I find paper's awesome on the iPad. Yeah, and and because uh, like everyone says, you know, there are fewer distractions, right? It's it's filling up the whole screen. I'm not tempted to double tap home and switch over to something else as much as I would be if I have them looking at my big screen with I've got you know my IM window and all the IRC windows and the Twitter window. Like I can just sit there and just go through and just bang those things out. Uh, but mostly when I'm when I'm spending time on the iPad, it's relaxing. I find it a relaxing device to use. It's like my vacation from the computer, you know. 
That's yeah. how I use it at home anyway. You know, WWC is an exception, obviously. Yeah, it, it's amazing how much work you can get done on the iPad and, and the, the new one with this high-speed internet connection. It's it's pretty awesome. I, as we record this, I'm in the middle of a trial, so I'm up in, in L.A. Superior Court, and I, I live about an hour and a half away from there. And I use the iPad a lot. <laughs> even more than the Mac because it's, it's a battery. I always know I'm going to have a charge. I don't need to worry about you know running the battery in my computer for the trial-related stuff. I'm instantly on the Internet. And and like you, I'm getting pretty adept at that on-screen keyboard, which I never thought I would. I still feel worse entering text, though. And like I will, I'll tweet, and I'll do a quick answer to an email. But, uh, for example, when I reply, I want to, you know, manually fiddle with the text that I'm replying to to quote just the right amount. I don't like, you know, bottom quoting where you just add your little two cents and push down the existing quoted message. And the inefficiency of manipulating the insertion point and doing, you know, selecting large swaths of text and deleting it and the fact, you know, the, the pushing down and holding and the little magnifying glass and scrolling around, that drives me up a wall. So if I have to do, if I have to write anything longer, if I have to reply to an email or write anything longer than a tweet, I will go over to the Mac and do it. When, when well, I I'm sure you saw the YouTube video that's gone viral about the yes, I did. suggested changes. Yes, I was very excited about that. Uh, I, I talked about it on, on my podcast. I think, right, right. I think so. Yeah, I think uh, I fear that that kind of indirect manipulation is not up Apple's alley, where you're making a gesture on one part of the screen to make things happen on another part of the screen. Even though that is analogous to how you do it on a trackpad, I think the whole iOS thing is kind of stab your finger where you want the insertion point to be. They can still make improvements within the paradigm they've chosen, but I'm afraid as much as I would love uh, that demonstrated feature that Apple's not going to see that and, and say, oh, we should do that. But I hope they do something because I really don't like the current interface to selecting text and editing and stuff. It just feels slow and cumbersome, especially with the, the pressing and the holding. It's no good. Yeah, and the more time you spend with people who who are not like us and really into this stuff, you realize that they can't change that. It's going to stay, I think, the way it is. Yeah, and they might be able to, like, the, you know, the gestures, the multi-tacking gestures that they added, those are off yeah, by but, default, but you can turn them on. That kind of makes me think maybe they're willing to, like, put some kind of features in that are for more advanced users that are off by default, because then you don't bother the regular people with them, and then we can choose whether we try them out or not, you know? Yeah, I use that four finger swipe to switch apps all the time. So so convenient. I had to turn it off because then it yeah. disables the ability to play Fruit Ninja for my kids to play Fruit Ninja because they will constantly be eternally going back. You know, they're just pawing at the screen. They, you will accidentally do these gestures while playing iOS games if you know, or while while children are playing iOS games anyway. And even for myself, yeah, I find I do them accidentally sometimes. With with my nephew, I uh, I have to turn it off because he's two and <laughs> whatever app he's in he eventually gets out of it if if i don't but otherwise i like to keep it on yeah. you're a big gamer too i forgot about that you, i mean you've really talked a lot about it on your podcast now do you is do you do gaming on your mac or do you do you have a pc for that i do it everywhere i possibly can i've never actually owned a pc but i do i love so much when apple went to intel because i basically do have a pc i just reboot into windows and i have a very fast high performance pc with none of the drawbacks of any kind of you know virtual pc or emulation or something like that uh, so i do game on my mac uh, lion has been a, a big boost to mac game performance at least the later versions of lion in particular it used to be that if you know i'd get applications that are available on both uh, games that are available on both the pc and the mac 
and they would be, you know, like Portal, for example, uh, or Portal 2 uh, came out for the same at the same time for the Mac and the PC, and I, you get both versions when you buy it. Like, I bought the, actually bought the PlayStation 3 version, but you had a code to get everything. So I have three versions of, of Portal 2, one for the PlayStation 3, one for the Mac, one for the PC, all available at the same time. And when I tried to play it on the Mac, which is what you want to do, because I'm booted into Mac OS X all the time, it was so much slower than when I ran it in Windows that I just had to bite the bullet every time I wanted to play and reboot into Windows to play it. Now, in later version of Lines, that gap has narrowed significantly. So as much as possible for games that are available on the Mac, I play them on the Mac, particularly anything that's like a first-person shooter. But I also play on you know the game consoles, on the TV. In fact, that's where I prefer to play games these days, just because I'm spending all day sitting in front of my computer. I really want to be on a couch, leaning back, my television is much larger than my computer monitor. You know, it's just it's just a nicer place to play. But I do play uh, games on my Mac and my PC inside my Mac and my game consoles and and an iOS and on the iPad, like everywhere. Gaming, I will game everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that with the Mac getting increased market share, we're starting to see big developers come out with games simultaneously. Like it was Diablo three, I think, just came Blizzard's out. Blizzard's always and, good about simultaneous releases. Yeah, yeah. There's some really smart people at Blizzard. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about virtualization earlier, and now you find out you're running a PC on your Macs. I think that's interesting. So, is is gaming the only thing you're doing on the PC side of your Mac? And then, what are you using the virtualization for? Yeah, gaming is the the only reason I ever reboot into boot camp. Okay, Uh, and. For for VMware, VMware has has been a great addition to my life because, like, this is I, I really feel like with Mac OS X. And the Intel Switch, I have everything that I wanted in terms of platform capability. Because now I have one machine, for now anyway, if they discontinue the Mac Pro, I'll be sad. But I have one machine that I can do everything on. I'm a Unix nerd, so I wanted a Unix command line. Well, Mac OS X's got that, right? I'm a Mac guy, so I want a Mac GUI. Mac, Mac OS X's got that. I need to be able to run Windows Internet Explorer, although you know less so as time goes on, for work purposes to test web pages to make sure they work in, in the Windows browsers. So VMware runs at full speed because it's an Intel CPU, and I've got that. And I need to be able to run multiple versions of Windows to test in Windows 7 and Windows XP and, you know, all, everything. Uh, so I can have multiple VMs for that, and I want to be able to play games so I can reboot into Boot Camp. Uh, so Boot Camp is basically, its only purpose is I boot into there and I, and I play games. That's it. It's the only reason it exists at all. Uh, but VMware, I have tons of VMs. Like, I, I don't... I should open it up. I have VMs for every preview release of, of Mountain Lion, uh, Windows XP, Windows 7, Windows Vista, different versions of IE and different you know, different VMs, just tons of stuff in there. Uh, and I use it extensively for work and for doing research for articles. If Apple doesn't update the Mac Pros, are you going to be able to do what you do currently on a high-end 27-inch iMac, or is that going to present a real problem? I It might be a problem... Because, like, here are the problems with, with the iMac. Historically, you have not been able to stuff as much RAM into it as you can stuff in a Mac Pro. Uh, and as you can imagine with all those VMs, each one of those is like a whole other computer. And I can kind of keep them RAM starved to not give them that much, but it adds up really fast. So if I can't, if I physically can't fit as much RAM in there, then it's going to be a step down for me. The hard drives, yeah, I can buy external hard drives. That's more of a financial problem because i can buy a one terabyte hard drive mechanism for you know 100 bucks or something that's actually pretty good and high performance but you cannot buy a one terabyte external firewire or thunderbolt hard drive for your imac for a hundred dollars you just you know yeah. sometimes the cases cost a hundred dollars with no hard drive in them and i have four and of those. this fifty dollar cable yeah right or even just firewire you know and, and i have four internal hard drives and one external 
So am I going to have five boxes sitting next to my 27-inch iMac all connected with all those cables and their own power supplies and their own wall warts and their own little things spinning away and I have to pay 200 bucks at least for each one of those things? That's going to make me sad. And from the gaming side, the video cards that they put in the iMacs are very wimpy. Uh, the only machine Apple has ever sold with a high-end video card has been the Mac Pro and the Power Mac before that. So I'll be very, very sad if they discontinue the Mac Pro. And it takes suction cups to get in. I mean, it's not like you can <laughs> yeah. just put a new card in. Yeah. I wonder if they're gonna they're gonna make a, an external video card with a Thunderbolt. Someone cable. someone had one of those. I I read all about it, but I don't know if it's released yet. It could have been just in a trade show. That, but the, the main problem that I saw was that a Thunderbolt does not have enough power apparently, or not, no, not enough power. Not enough PCI Express lanes for the highest of the high end video cards. So the Thunderbolt is basically a PCI Express over a wire outside your computer, which is why the video cards can work. The highest of the high-end cards uh, want more PCI Express lanes of connection between uh, them and the uh, the main system. So you'd still be limited to not quite the highest-end card you can get. And when I buy a Mac Pro, I always get the best video card that Apple sells with it. So so what is the game of choice these days? The best game on, th- oh, on my Mac? Hmm. Okay, just I'll back up. What's your what's what's the if you're going to pick one, what's the game yeah, so these days? The game, my game of the year so far, and the year is young, but I think it will hold pretty strong. Is Journey for the PlayStation Three that I've talked about <laughs> to anyone that will listen? Just being the obnoxious person, so you got to play Journey. It is a unique combination of uh, a game that is very inexpensive and very short and therefore accessible to people who aren't serious gamers like i'm not going to recommend hey you should play the latest zelda game because it takes 70 hours to play and is actually yeah. pretty darn difficult uh journey is 15 dollars. you can buy it online on your playstation 3 and it takes two hours to play uh, it's still maybe a little bit too much for people who aren't gamers to play and maybe they won't like it as much as i did but that that totally was the best gaming experience i've had uh anywhere this year so far uh, on the Mac, mostly I've been playing old games on the Mac, believe it or not. Like, I'm working my way through uh, Valve's back catalog now that so many games are available on the Mac through Steam. Uh, yeah. And those are long games, and they take a while to go through. So all the various Half-Life episodes and Left for Dead and, and stuff like that. And uh, Diablo 3, I played the, the demo of that. I've never really particularly been into Diablo, but that was a great-looking game. Torchlight, which is very similar. Uh, my A lot of games I've been playing either with or... Uh, Introducing to my kids, like uh, Aquaria, which is a great uh, iOS game, which was at first a Mac game. I played it myself on the Mac, and then I, I let my son play it on the iPad when they came out with the iOS port. There is a lot of games out there uh, for the Mac and for iOS that technically are old games. Like, if you're into games, you've seen them before, you've already played them. But for people who aren't, like, as far as they're concerned, this is something entirely new. And really, like, for example, for Aquaria, playing that on the iPad is a different experience to playing it on the Mac. Uh, and it's... It's almost like an entirely different game. And then finally, there's iOS exclusives. And the best iOS exclusive I've played by far in the past year or so has been uh, Sword and Sorcery, with spelled weird with, weirdly with a W. Do you know that game? Yeah, you know, I'm halfway through it. It's, it's like very pixelated, but it's, a, it's really fun. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. It's, it's like a look, you know, they have. It's very kind of like art house gaming nerd indie it's like the equivalent of uh, an art house indie movie that only like movie snobs are into that's that's what that but i'm 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 a gamer snob so i i love it i read that they're coming out with um baldur's gate for ios yeah and like i i you would think that gamers would turn up their nose at the idea of like some game that i played 10 years ago and you're gonna put it on ios so what 
but things like Aquaria, where you know, where it just feels like an entirely different game. You're like, what's the difference between using a mouse to control a little person swimming through the water and using your finger? It turns out the difference is a lot. It's a big difference. Uh, it really just changes what it's like to play the game. Uh, so I think a lot of games are, are potentially able to find new life on the platform if they're a good fit. Sometimes they're not. Like they, they ported Marathon, the old first-person shooter with the Mac, to, to iOS, and it's terrible on the iPad. Uh, but some games are a better fit. So anything where, where I guess where you have like random access to a large screen, like I imagine real-time strategy games might work for this. You know, certainly tower defense games are great on iOS because you just you know tap in various spots. It's, you know, you have random access, multiple fingers, and not really like crushing real-time constraints to do things. Uh, I'm still waiting for Leisure Suit Larry to come back. Yeah, that'd be good too. Most of the Sierra things would be good for uh, for iOS because yeah, just you know tap on the screen where you want to go. I guess if there's any typing part, you might have a problem. Yeah. Well, you know that that's some uh, some good. You know, we've never talked about games on our show, so that's fun. I'm glad we're able to do that. <laughs> a different topic. Well, John, we've been going about an hour and a half now. Do you, is there anything that you want to cover? You feel like we haven't covered, or it's your show? Yeah, geez, <laughs> these things. Uh, t- anything at time I'm on a podcast or writing, t- things tend to go long. I think we've hit the highlights. We'll go as long as you want to go. Yeah, I, I think we've covered. Is there anything else you you think you want to know about my process, such as it is? No, it it sounds like like a lot of our our power user friends that you know you've got a few tools that you're you're using the heck out of, and and that's working for you. Yeah. Although I am going to uh, follow up with you and send you a couple screencasts on Scrivener, you may find that that has some use for the type of research you're doing. But uh, then again, I'm I don't not know sure. that's something you want to switch to midstream though if you're if you're halfway through your your researching your review. Well, can you do HTML in it because that's always my barrier. I know it it will export HTML. I don't know if you write in HTML in it. I have never tried that. I, I write in uh, Markdown, which I know that's not really your thing. No, it's not. Like I'm thinking of an instance where like when I'm like for the lion review, there was a picture of the lion GUI with some window that I had arranged, and when you mouse over it, it shows you the snow leopard GUI. And I just type that out in HTML and JavaScript as I'm doing the yeah. article, and it's Scrivener is not the tool for that job. That's yeah, not. That's not good for that. But what I like about it is the research is available, and I can remove, I can move things around very easily. But and also, frankly, if you're going to get an iPad. I think probably what you're doing now is probably the best way to go because it's all just Dropbox synced and you're good to go. Yeah, it's a lot of manual work. I, like I said, I'm not doing. I, I'm probably massively inefficient, but I'm mostly concerned with like, is it feasible? Is it possible? Do I feel secure that I'm not losing data and that I can find it easily in plain text, plain text search, and simple outlining modes, and simple note and Dropbox and BB Edit? That combination at least makes me feel like I'm. I'm able to do what I need to do, even if it feels very clumsy sometimes. So, Well, you know, when it comes to writing, I'm like you. I'm a guy who loves to automate stuff and, and you know, key combinations. I, I love all that stuff. But when it comes to writing, to me at least, you know, the bottleneck is my brain. It's not how fast the the operating system works or how fast I select the words or anything like that. It, it really is just me getting my thoughts together more than anything else. So I don't get that hung up with it in the writing workflow. That's actually one part. Towards the end of the writing process of these big reviews, it ends up becoming a little bit more like software development. Because what I have at that point is, at this point, a very large single HTML file. And there is a process by which I have to transform this into the format that I need to input into the Ars Technica content management system. 
and that format changes frequently because they change the backend architecture frequently. So I have a, basically a compilation process whereby I run a bunch of scripts uh, through BBEdit on this thing that manipulates the the input to produce the final output that gets pasted into the CMS. And that sort of edit, compile, and deploy loop happens with increasing rapidity as I come towards the end of the thing. Now, this is just, you know, the architect, the copy editors and the editors are going to edit it. And then I have to sync those changes back. And again, I use BBEdit to do that with this great diffing tools, right? I have to yeah. reverse that transformation, do the diff, sync the changes back so that my copy is the canonical copy. And what I always end up having is a series of Perl scripts that do this compilation step forward, in forward and reverse. And then I'm using BBEdit to diff them. And that just goes on and on and on as we get closer and closer. As I'm trying to keep my local thing synchronized with what they're doing there and debugging little things in html and tweaking the images and stuff like that so the end of the writing process looks a lot like software development and that's a, that's the case where the fact that it, my canonical copy is a plain text html file that's transformed by a series of perl scripts uh that that's where that really starts to pay off so even if i did the majority of the work in the research in scrivener at some point it would have to leave the world of scrivener and become you know a plain text file that i i compile and distribute and sync back and different bb edit and that becomes uh, another area of friction. The, now, do you do all your automation with Perl scripts? I mean, do you ever use things like Automator or AppleScript or any of that stuff? Uh, Automator, the only time I find myself even considering using Automator is if there's some, if, I, if I'm like doing GUI scripting or I want to take advantage of some uh, component of Mac OS X, like you know, if I want to do a core image filter or something. Obviously, the way to do that is either Course Composer or Automator or uh, raw AppleScript. But most of the time, what I'm doing is manipulating text files. And yeah, I'm just going to write that myself. Because it's like BBA lets me basically write arbitrary Perl scripts and execute them in arbitrary sections of my code. And it has great integration for that. So I'll either do it from within BBEdit, hooked up that way, or just write Perl scripts on the command line. Yeah, I use Automator all the time, but I'm kind of a poser. You know, I, I used to program... Um, you know, player missile graphics on an Atari. <laughs> I, I couldn't program anything anymore, but Automator lets me pretend. Yeah, but not, like, and it's not, you know, you could use anything, you just, whatever you want to use for text manipulation, but Perl's pretty darn good at it, and it's what I know best by far, so that's what I lean on heavily. Well, John, thanks for coming by. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I, like I said, I'm a huge fan of yours, and, and anybody who's listening should definitely add hypercritical to their RSS or their their podcatcher. It's a great, great uh, podcast. You and Dan cover very nerdy subjects in detail. And you managed in your most recent episode to find a way to talk about the framer's intent, which made my heart <laughs> that, you know, sing. Made your heart sing, but then again, you're not seeing the feedback email I get. So, <laughs> oh, you know, I, It's funny because I had that same exact argument while I was in law school with somebody where, you know, I'm like, why do we really care? <laughs> and uh, that guarantees I'll never be on the U.S. Supreme Court, but there's probably a lot of other reasons I would never be on it, too, so I'm okay with that. Well, I don't think you can blog from there. Yeah, exactly. Probably not. So. If I can't write about Max Park stuff, then <laughs> I am out of there. <laughs> John, other than the, the podcast, where else can we send people to find you and your writings, and where's, where's the best place to connect with well, you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter, which, believe it or not, is where I do most of my public writing these days, because I post something almost every day. It's my last name is my Twitter name, Syracusa. Uh, and Ars Technica, once or twice a year, you'll find me there. Uh, and I do have a personal blog, but I post that even less frequently. So I would say uh, podcast and Twitter feed if you want the maximum dosage of Syracusa. And if not, 
check Ars Technica once or twice a year, and you'll see me there. Sounds okay. good. Okay. Yeah, just one last question. Can we just talk about Goodfellas for a minute? Sure. Huh. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right, John. Thanks a lot for coming by, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Okay, David, well, we want to thank John Syracuse for joining this show, but we do have a lot of feedback to get through because this is our second workflow show in a row. So we're going to kind of break one of our rules and, and pop some feedback in here, if that's all right with you. I think that's a great idea. All right. So we got a comment from Alan, and we commented about how important it was to not only back up all of the data in your paperless system, because this is some of the most important data on your Mac, but also to make sure that that data is safe and secure, because you don't know what's in there. You could have financial documents, you could have private documents. It's just a good idea. You don't want people snooping around in there. And Alan wrote in and talked about a service that he used called ARC, that's A-R-Q, along with the Amazon S3 service for backup. And ARC is a product that encrypts your data and stores it on S3. It was uh, recommended by Steve Gibson on the Security Now podcast on the Twit Network. And you can access your data either through Mac or or iOS, rather. Uh, But it's a really secure backup, and it might be something worth checking out, especially if you want to use the Amazon S3 system for backup. Yeah, we also heard from Harvey talking about the AT&T microcell. And I know, Katie, you have personal experience with that. I do. Uh, is it, how do you feel about it at this point? You've been using one a couple of years. I've been using the microcell for several years. It's really a necessity. I have pretty much no service at my house without the microcell. And it allows me to make phone calls at my house. It's not perfect. I, I hate the idea of the microcell being that, you know, obviously you have to buy this box to have service that you pay for. But that's kind of a discussion for a different day. It seems to work well. The The way that it works is you plug it into your, your broadband system. I've got mine plugged into my, my cable Ethernet system. And what it does is it uses your broadband connection to bridge the gap between you and the tower. So it, it uses kind of, a I guess, a VoIP technology to go from your house to the nearest cell tower or a cell tower, and then it completes your, your cell phone conversation from there. So unless you've got a special plan, you are using your cell minutes. You are using your data when you're connected to the microcell. But I've got a fairly small three-bedroom house, and I've got it centrally located. I've got service in most of my house, and it works. There's a difference between being able to make a call and not. There's some issues. Sometimes it's a little laggy. Sometimes it doesn't connect, and that can be an issue. Sometimes you have to reboot it, but beats the alternative. Yeah, we also heard from Craig talking about using the Drobo FS. Uh, he said, you know, I listened to your show about the setup and wondered if you can expand a little bit on your use of the Drobo FS for your iTunes library. And I know, Katie, you run your iTunes library centrally off this Drobo FS on your network, right? I, I'm, I run my main iTunes library, which is, is fed through my Mac Mini off of my Drobo FS because that Mac Mini hard drive, I, I like to keep really lean and lean and mean. So what I've done is I've relocated my iTunes library to the Drobo, and we talked about how to do that in the iTunes show, but basically you have to uh, relocate the library and then consolidate all of your files there to make sure that everything is is in that proper library and you're not splitting your stuff inadvertently. But it seems to work fine for me. I'm, I'm able to stream video. I'm able to stream audio. I haven't noticed any kind of lag. I'm able to stream high-def video when I buy or rent high-def movies from the iTunes store. And it it seems to work great and I can access my movies pretty much anywhere in the house now. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was taken to task by Roy and, uh, he talked about word in the publishing field and 
the fact is I do make a sigh audibly on air every time I talk about Microsoft Word. <laughs> and uh, he says, look, you know, you know, Word may be overkill for a lot of things, but their editing suite is excellent. And, you know, you should just get over it because that's what people need to do editing. I, I can see some of that. You know, now, now that I'm a self-publisher, it's a little easier. Uh, my editor and I were working in pages and I found that the uh, pages change tracking stuff was just fine. For what I was doing, but I understand why big companies use it. That's what we use in our office. That's what I use for anything work related. It's just a necessity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Neil wrote in with a question, and maybe you can answer it. I couldn't answer it, but he was listening back to one of our older shows. I think this was episode 49 when we talked about Mac maintenance. So getting back there in the archives. And we never really talked about best practices for duplicated files and applications. And he wanted to know, was there any software that we used or recommended? Obviously, you can use a product like Daisy Disk to find you know, where your, your space is being used. But how do you find if you've got a dozen of the same small text files, you know, smaller files that maybe individually aren't that big of a deal, but text files are a bad example. But, you know, if you have a dozen of the same files that individually aren't a big deal, but collectively make a, a difference, how do you find them? I don't you know, use them. Do you, do you use any no, software for this? I've never really had a problem with duplicate files. I think that was something back kind of in the battle days where computers would would clone files and not really give you a reason why. The only time I run into duplicate files these days is when, you know, my kids or I will drag a movie into iTunes more than once and sometimes we'll end up with a couple of copies, but that's pretty obvious and easy to fix. But, you know, I, Neil, I have never really found a need to search out and destroy duplicate files on the Mac and I don't have a solution. So if anybody does send it in and we'll put it in the show. Yeah, I don't, I'm in the same boat. Although I do know if you do a search in the Mac App Store, you'll see several products, but I can't comment on anything about them. Well, you know, one place we talked about duplicate files in the past was the iTunes Match Show, uh, where we talked about the ways you can check for duplicate tracks, which can happen in iTunes. And there's a trick for that, I believe, is the option mm-hmm. key. You hold the option key and you go find exact duplicates, then that really helps you, you get to get to the root of that problem or use one of Doug's scripts. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan rec- uh, wrote in with another recommendation for another iOS app for capturing receipts. And that is one receipt. And it's again, one of these apps where you take a picture of the receipt and then the, but in this case it has an online component to it. So what happens is the receipt is transcribed and sent to your one receipt account for manual entry of the receipt. Apparently there's Gmail and Yahoo Mail integration available and you can set up some kind of linked account that will automatically be added and at the end of each month a spending report is generated and that data is emailed to you. So that might be a kind of an automated way to generate expense reports or at least let you know how much you're spending on all this stuff you're taking pictures of. Yeah, so long as you're comfortable with the fact that it goes out there somewhere for someone to process. Right. Uh, there's a growing crop of these applications and services that deal with your bills and you know getting the online bills for you or processing your budget. I think it really is the future. At Macworld, several people pulled me aside and say, you, you really can't talk about those things on your show. It's not right because these services are terrible. I don't know. I think we're heading that way. So we might as well be aware of them. Right. Uh, and I'm not, frankly, all against them either. I think that with the, with the proper precautions, it, it could work. 
Steve wrote in and wanted to know why we kept talking about your gas bill in the paperless episode. And I think what he wanted to know is, why do I need to capture my utility bill? Do I really need to have a local copy of that in my files, especially when they're generally available on the utilities company's website? In my experience, the utility company keeps them for a limited period of time, and after that it's it's actually quite tedious to try and get them. Right. Uh, the bigger question is, do we need them anyway? I'm not that, sure. That's probably but true. It, it's an easy... Using a utility bill is an easy vehicle to talk about these paperless workflows. Um, so it's up to you. Make your own decision. I do keep the stuff that comes in. I keep it because it's just so darn easy with the, the, the tools we've got on the Mac to capture it anyway. If it does come up, uh, you've got it. I've, I've needed them for tax purposes or for verification of residence purposes. Now, you probably don't need all your utility bills. You probably just need one, but... I need them at the end of the year to go back a full year and show how much I've spent on utilities for certain deductions that I take. Yeah, like if it's a home office or something, you're yeah. going to need that stuff. You are? Well, you know, it's up, it's up to you. I mean, keep what you need, by all means. Uh, one of the things I've always felt like is is sort your mail over a trash can and throw away the stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, David, I don't think you have an excuse to no longer use Evernote anymore. Yeah, I know. Isn't that great? Uh, Jeff and many, many others wrote in to point out that just as we were releasing our paperless podcast and talked about how our my one major gripe with Evernote still was the fact that you couldn't mass export your files and that getting multiple PDFs out of Evernote for uh, is is a problem and tedious and cumbersome and they really don't have a good mechanism for export, they updated it. You can do that now. Yeah, I, I still have to find a, a place for Evernote in my life. I, I, I even go out drinking with Brett Kelly, you know, the Evernote guy, and I, I can't seem to get into using Evernote. So we'll, we'll, we'll get it figured out at some point. Well, I mean, there's, there's pieces of it that I like. I really like it for travel um, and some other things, but I just don't see it as a bank account for all my documents. I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty cool. We got a lot of emails from people who love it. Yeah. Uh, it's, I got to tell you, it's pretty cool. I've been, I've been running this dual system for the last year, and now that I know that at the end of the year I can export all this stuff from Evernote and send it to my accountant, oh, I don't think I'm ever going to touch those folders. Now, can you export a bunch of them at once? Or yeah, you yeah, yeah. You, right can, you can grab a whole file. Okay. You can like highlight um, a whole slew of PDFs and uh, uh, click Save and Export, the option in the menu bar, and it will save them all to a specific folder. I'm going to go play with it as soon as we hang up here. Okay. Um, and I think that's about going to wrap us up for this episode. It's It's been a little bit of a marathon. Of course, we always like that with John Syracuse. Yeah, John is great. I'm so happy he came on the show. I think I was gushing too much. <laughs> that's okay. I just think the guy is brilliant, and I, I like the way he thinks. So if you haven't listened to Hypercritical, go ahead and listen to it. And here's a hypercritical trick. Sometimes they talk about something you have no interest in, like... Video games. Uh, Video game controllers, okay. you know, like that was it. They did a whole episode, even well, as they much did a few nerd. episodes on that. Yeah, well, you know, after like thirty minutes of video game controllers, I stepped aside. But then the next episode, they'll talk about something that I think is very interesting, like and the founders' intent on patent law. Why not? Why not? Yeah, so so go check out that show if you haven't. I I suspect that we're having more people listening to the show that are coming from Hypercritical than people that already listen to our show that don't know what Hypercritical is. But yeah, if who you are we kidding? What? I said, who are we kidding? 
Yeah, but if you fall in that category, that is a Mac Power user listener, and you haven't listened to Hypercritical, go listen to Hypercritical. Yeah, yeah we are so fortunate to be part of this larger 5x5 family that I think is just the greatest podcasting network for tech geeks out there. And uh, there's just a ton of talent on 5x5. And you know, just give in. Go to the master right. audio feed. Yeah, there you go. So. So, Katie, uh, how do you find us? Well, you can find links to everything that we talked about on our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at the 5x5 website at 5x5.tv slash MPU. You can also send us feedback uh, through email. It's feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And we're on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd, and David is at Max Sparky. And finally, we'd like to thank our exclusive sponsor for this show, Smile Software, with their great products, Tech Expander and MediaPay. Both of them make me smile every day. All right, and we'll see you next time.